Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You are about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. I'm your host, Rob Stinnett, here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up? What's up? Okay, here we go, people. We are diving into Scary Movie October, or whatever we've decided to call uh, this this month. Um, we're heading back in after Zodiac, and we are talking about, what are we talking about today, Rob? The Shining. The, the 1980 Shining. Stanley Kubrick film. When I started a podcast called The Meaning of the Movie, very early on, this was like, we have to talk about this movie. Because... It has so many different meanings to different people. It's one of those movies that like begs for criticism and looking more deeply about. And so I was super excited to talk about it. And then I found out that you had never seen it. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct, which I hate is the running theme of this podcast of Andrew watching movies that everyone else has seen that he should have seen. Um, yeah, no, uh, again. OK, so I, I watched it for the first time and boy, uh, that's a movie. Uh, <laughs> there's so much going on in that movie. I, I'm not even sure where to start with this movie. I think most fundamentally what I'm curious about is, did this movie scare you? Did this movie scare me? Um, not as much as I expected it to. Um, I thought this movie was going to be a lot scarier than it was. So I'm going to say no. If I had to give it a thumbs up or thumbs down for scariness, I'm going to say no. However, there were certainly moments where I was kind of creeped out. I would say the final 30 minutes sufficiently creeped out by the whole Jack Nicholson and an axe situation. I think what's interesting about this question is like, this is a movie pretty much without jump scares. Like yeah. I recently just w watched uh, The Sixth Sense. I was actually like, oh, we should do that for an episode in October and maybe we will or maybe we will somewhere down the line. But that movie has jump scares every five minutes, you know, every two minutes. It's like, oh, he's in the kitchen and then he turns around and there's a woman with slit wrists there. Or there's a girl in his tent like throwing up. It's just like, boom, everything is about like angles and turning around and jump scares. Or even like when the mom like leaves the kitchen and comes back and all the cabinets are open. Like even that yes. visual is done like a jump scare. And I think the music cues it as a jump scare. And it is unsettling. When I think we think about modern scary movies, I think that's what we're saying is like that scream and popcorn goes up in the air. And The Shining right. pretty much never has that. And yet, I think this movie is terrifying. Okay. I think it is truly scary. Um, and I was even watching it last night. I'm watching the opening, you know, credits, which are just like these drone shots of a VW bug like driving up. And my wife is like, what is this weird movie? Like, what are you watching? And then she finally realized it was The Shining. But it's it's weird because, like, the scenery is kind of, like, beautiful and nice. But the music is, like, kind of children laughing and this weird, like, synthesizer organ oh, playing. Yeah. And I think that this movie kind of, like, starts at a terrifying note and then just kind of keeps it there the whole time. I would counter that by saying this movie starts at an unsettling note and it is unsettling. The whole time I've just I feel like I've watched scarier mood like where I've just been in situations where I've been much more scared. I felt more at ease in this movie than I expected to. I think when I say it starts off with a terrifying note, what I mean is just like everything is off about this movie. Sure. Everything is like kind of weird, like they're driving up. So in a normal like 
The Conjuring or like Amityville Horror or something like that, where it's like this family who's getting into a haunted house situation. It's like the family is like really sweet, right? Like they're talking about their dreams and their hopes and that sort of stuff. On the first scene that we see like uh, Jack Torrance and the Torrance family like driving up to the Overlook, you know what they're talking about? The Donner Party. They're just kind of having this casual conversation about cannibalism with their five-year-old. It is it is odd for sure. I mean, the the introduction of Jack Nicholson's character, who's called Jack in the movie. It's very, very handy for us on this podcast. We can just call him Jack. Um, but I feel like the opening scene where we meet him at the hotel, right, that opening shot of like the bug driving up, it's just him. And then he's interviewing for the job. Then he has to go get his family. And they like it takes us a while to get into the Overlook Hotel with them being alone. Like once they get there, there's like 20 minutes of them getting a tour of the place before they're there alone. Like it is a lot of exposition. But something that I thought was so interesting and made it feel real to me. Up front in a way that a lot of scary movies don't. The manager of the hotel, which is like a Stuart Ullman, I think his name Stuart is. Stuart Ullman, yep. Yeah, yeah. When he's giving Jack the rundown of like what the job is, is he's totally upfront with him about everything in the way that like you would be in real life. I feel like his character's job was to be like, hey, this place is a little weird. Something bad might happen. That was his job as like the archetype of the movie. And most of the time in like a scary movie, it's it'll be like, you know, they're going up to the cabin and they stop at a gas station and like the creepy like gas station attendant is like, ah, no one comes back from that cabin and like closes right. the window. Right. The, the, the character that warns you is always some, you know, like an old lady standing watering in her lawn or, so you know, this this weird like. Uh, vibe, right? That just puts you in, okay, I'm in a weird haunted location, but it's not real. The way that he introduced it was like, hey, full disclosure, um, guy who did this 10 years ago uh, murdered his entire family with an axe. Like, we don't want to talk about it. Uh, it's really, really unsettled. Like, I, I, I have to tell you because if I didn't, I'd feel terrible. But, you know, what's so interesting is Jack is just like, nope, this is what my family need. You know, he's not even like, Oh, wow, that's disturbing, whatever else like that. Sure. He's just like, oh, okay, well, we're looking for some peace and quiet, you know, and he's full. But isn't that what you expect from the main character is when someone tells them that something's creepy is them to go, ah, no big deal, right? That's what people do in scary movies is they blow it off. That's what everyone does. So it didn't strike me as odd that he did. Well, I don't think that's true because I think like in, you know, The Conjuring, which is another really great scary movie, like, the family is scared. And even though they're saying, like, okay, we're fine, we can't move, you know, the re- he has to go to the- take this job. Like, the- in the novel, it really talks much more about it, but, like, he's been fired from every single job. Like, there's nowhere else for him to go. So he okay. ultimately le- either has to take this job or he's out on the street. In a normal movie, in a normal, like, horror movie, characters are scared, and then they're like, what am I scared of? There's nothing to be scared of here right but here even when he's hearing like unsettling information which is like a family who is exactly like yours who did the exact same thing they met a horrible ending because he doesn't just say they were killed he's like hacked him up with a you know with with axe and then and then took a shotgun in his mouth he gives like the gory details of like how it happened and so there's not even like euphemisms it's not like they met an unfortunate end or something like that he's just like tells them the gory details and he's like well, that's not going to happen to us. And it's just like, I guess that's what I mean about like terrifying from the word go is like everyone 
it is like this is how people would talk, but it's also like everyone's a little bit off. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as soon as you meet Danny and Wendy is when I started to feel that for sure. And you're right, the the conversation about like cannibalism in, in the car. Um, yeah, everyone is a little bit off. Like Danny is certainly off. He has, a, in his words, a little boy that lives inside his mouth. Um, and Wendy from the jump seems like she's seen things <laughs> that she shouldn't have seen. Like she feels like a basket case from the beginning, right? That's barely holding it together. Okay, so I want to know this. Like, what are the questions that you have after watching this movie? What were you like? Wait, what was that? I'm trying to make sense of it. What's going on here? So I feel like the job of most supernatural horror movies is to set up a whole bunch of supernatural questions to scare you with the unknown. And then in the third act, there's a big like monster chase thing where it's all revealed and they have to like kill the whatever it is that they now fully understand. Right. Like that's kind of the structure. And I feel like The Shining, at least in the movie, I have not read the book, but The Shining, they set up all of these supernatural questions and answer exactly none of them. Um, like Literally zero questions are answered about all the really interesting supernatural uh, premises that they bring into this, like the fact that the boy can communicate with people telekinetically, um, that there's someone named Tony who talks to him. Spoiler for the very end of the movie, why is Jack Nicholson in the painting? Why has he always been the caretaker? What does that even mean? I feel like there's so many loose ends that make it unsettling, right? Because you want to know what on earth is happening, but they answer none of them. So there are two primary readings of this film. One of the readings is that there there is no supernatural activity. There's nothing supernatural happening at all in the movie. And these are just characters who are melting down mentally. And every supernatural thing that we're seeing is a projection of their own uncertainty. Everyone is literally having cabin fever. They're all kind of going mad together. They're all kind of having this group hypnosis, hallucinogens. Like, I don't know what you would say, but they're all just kind of like literally going crazy. And what they're seeing is just their own kind of nightmares. And there is nothing supernatural in the film. That's kind of reading one. I mean, I can with everything except for the fact that Danny seemingly summons the the cook from Florida. Uh, What's his name? Dick Holleran. Dick Holleran. Played by Um, Scatman Crothers. Scatman Crothers. Yeah, that's what I wanted to call him because that's such a better name. Scatman Crothers. I love it. It's so good. Um, But the, the, the fact that he seems to telepathically call him, um successfully right like everything else could be ex- explained that way because everyone else has isolated hallucin like hallucinations jack never sees the twins um no one else sees the bar that he sees well and even there's a moment right where he's talking with lloyd at the bar and he's like ordering a drink and that sort of stuff and lloyd's talking uh-huh. with him and then wendy kind of walks right up and then she starts talking with him and then he like Danny's in trouble and he's like, OK, but he's not even like interrupted by the fact that, oh, Lloyd's not really here. He just kind of is like, oh, of course he's not. And then goes to Wendy and is like upset that she interrupted his fantasy. But he wasn't like, oh, that was so weird. It wasn't the horror movie right. thing. Right. And I think that's right. what I like about this movie so much. I think what you're saying is like boring or not terrifying. You didn't say boring. Oh, no, it's 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 certainly not boring. If there's one thing, it's not. It's boring. Like it is not boring. But. 
I, 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 there's a feeling I have when I watch scary movies, which is I desperately want to leave this place, right? Like I want to leave my living room. I want to leave this movie theater, but I can't peel my eyes off the screen because I have to know what happens in order to feel safe. It doesn't play with mystery like that. There isn't like the, okay, we're inviting you to figure out what's really going on here. There isn't like, okay, Lloyd's gone. And then Jack looks back like, where did he go? And he's looking at Wendy trying to figure it out. It's just like, she comes in with a problem and he's gone and he, he's just annoyed. And then they're doing the next thing, you know, like they're kind of like going on and on, but they're all having these like different hallucinations. And I think that's part of what's so interesting about this movie. It's, it's the idea of isolation is like all melting them down in different ways and they're all reacting to each other's meltdowns in ways that is breaking their brains. Because, like, Wendy doesn't start seeing anything until the very, very end of the movie. And when everything is really unraveling, then all of a sudden she sees the guy in the bear costume, which is one of the most, like, terrifying, weird <laughs> moments yeah, in movie honestly, history. Honestly, that was probably the scariest moment in the, in the movie for me, was the guy I think in the it bear is. costume. It, it's just definitely, like, what is happening? You know, because we're just... We're looking at madness, you know, and this woman who has right. been our anchor, who's been the one who's like kind of keeping things on the rails. All of a sudden we're like, oh, either she's losing her mind or this takes me into reading number two. Yeah. Which reading is number two. Reading number two is Danny has the shining, which is like a telekinetic power. It's why he and Scatman Crothers can kind of talk without like when he looks right. at him and he's like, hey, you want some ice cream, doc? And even right. that, Scatman that Crothers was says, very unsettling, too. That was one of those moments where I was like, oh, and that's what I mean. Like, it just has these like creepy moments in a way that's so interesting and different and unlike anything before or since. But the reading is like Danny has this supernatural power and he is like a battery for this hotel and his supernatural power really charges it and brings it to life. Okay, but if Scatman Crothers has a shining, why isn't it not happening all the time? Because he's the cook. He lives there the rest of the year. So it's kind of like Princess Leia having the force. Like it's like, okay, she has the force, but like she's kind of weak in the force. She can maybe like move something like casually. Danny's the chosen one. Danny is the chosen one. Yeah, he's Neo. He's Luke Skywalker. He has like, uh, and again, some of this I'm pulling from the novel, but Scatman Crothers like everyone shines a little bit. He's like everyone has these little uh, preconceived notions. You can kind of feel when danger's coming on. You can feel when your maybe your husband gets in a car accident or something like that. You have these little like transcendent things. Part of you is part of what being a human is. But Danny yeah. has it on crack danny has it like like he is the lebron james of shining he has such a power that it's brought to the hotel to life because because scatman crothers like yeah i see i've seen some squeaky things like if you've ever been to a hotel my buddy jim miles your buddy as well does ghost tours here in austin and he'll take you to the driscoll and show you different things of like hey here's ghost stories that happen in hotels go to any old hotel and it has stories and so that's kind of what scatman crothers is is like yeah i've seen some scary stuff but i just turn the other way but for him he doesn't have the same power in him and so for danny it's like so powerful that he brings it to life in which the ghosts can actually bite and hurt and do horrible things so what we're saying is it's Danny's fault that Jack goes crazy and tries to kill everybody? Well, it's not Danny's <laughs> fault, but he unleashes the power. You know, he is the person who, like, unleashes Pandora's box. He's so Danny's. I don't know that I fully agree with either of those readings. They both seem too reductive. 
Like the fact that they're all just going crazy is like maybe more interesting, but that's it's not what the movie feels like. And the fact that Danny is unleashing something is like feels too reductive of everything that's going on with Jack Nicholson's character. I'm I'm much more interested in the idea of isolation bringing on madness, um, which is what I thought this movie was going to be more about. And I found it to not feel that way. At this point in the conversation, I have to talk about Stephen King, who is a dear friend Please. of this podcast. We love Stephen King. <laughs> I thought um, you were going to say he was a dear friend of yours. I was like, do tell more. Say more right now. <laughs> what I'd say is this podcast is a dear friend of Stephen King. He will never listen to an episode, I'm sure, if yes, he does. He will, Hello, he will never King. know that we exist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we, um, you and I uh, have talked about him a bunch, and I just think he's this great storyteller. Um, and I, his novels, like many of them are bad and sorry, Mr. King, if you're listening, but many of them are like not great, but sometimes he writes a novel that I think is like transcendent and the shining is one of them. But what's so interesting is Stephen King hates the shining kind of famously of all his novels. This is one of the movies that he hates. So he loves his, he, he, he loves his novel, the shining, but he hates Kubrick's adaptation. He thinks Kubrick got it completely wrong. He thinks Kubrick is missed everything great about The Shining and like the movie that he turned into, which how many Stephen King movies have you seen? Like, what would you say? I would say I've seen quite a few adaptations. I don't know how many movies I've seen a couple miniseries. I'm going to say five. So I've probably seen 25. And I'd say like I'd say. 20 are bad you know like like a lot of his work because the thing is like even a movie like it which i like doesn't hold a candle to the novel it does like sure. it doesn't give you the same interiority it doesn't give you the same powerful thing there's a lot of his stuff like and it um, chapter kind of one th- is way better than it chapter two as far as m- movies go like it chapter two is borderline on not even working no it, it doesn't and part of it is because how they separate the two movies. But anyway, sure. I think it and we're going to talk about that is, movie later. We will. And I think it is one of the better movies, but I think he's done a lot. Like I'm trying to like pet cemetery, which is a great novel and a horrible movie. Uh, Cujo, which is a great novel and a horrible movie. I'm, I'm, it's fine. But like Firestarter, horrible. Like so many of the movies are bad because what Stephen King is great at is this interiority of like characters minds, like going crazy, dealing with fear most of his novels are the book is better than the movie. And so it's crazy that like of so many bad novel adaptations, the one that he hates is I think one of the best adaptations of the work, which is the shining, but he hates this movie. <laughs> that, that is wild. So you, you think not only is it a great movie, but a good adaptation of the book. You talk about the first like 20 minutes, of the movie being slow. The first 200 pages of the novel are the first 20 minutes of this movie movie where it's like they arrive at the overlook and then they have a day where they're playing outside and it's like okay the family's okay they love each other and then something goes a little bit off and he starts to go crazy and then they have another good day and it's just this much more like wholesome family that cares about each other that slowly starts to go crazy where in this movie everyone is kind of like off so these people are like 
broken, frail people from the first frame. And in Stephen King, they're kind of nice, beautiful people that slowly descend into madness. And right. so Stephen King is like, you missed what this novel is about. Which, there's a lot of like little differences. Like there's no maze in the novel. There's no, I don't think there's an axe in the novel. There's some like, like plot differences as well. But sure. I think for him, the big pushback is that massive difference of like what these characters were in the novel versus what they are in the film. Which is really interesting to me because I feel like that was my surprise with the, the movie was that I knew it was about isolation. And that's how they even set it up with the plot. And then as soon as they say that, like, he's it was a drunk who potentially was abusing his son. I was like, oh, my opinion on him changed suddenly. And then from then on out, he doesn't do anything to endear you to him. So as opposed to the idea of the isolation making them all fall apart and go crazy, it kind of feels like Jack Nicholson is a psychopath. Um, and, and that, that to me was like, then it, it put, it made him the danger and not the hotel. Well, one of the things that I should say about the book that's really interesting is in the book, he goes down in the boiler room and okay. finds like a bunch of history about the overlook. Boiler and it's rooms, like, man. wow. Always creepy. Yeah. Boiler rooms are creepy. <laughs> so he goes down there, finds like a bunch of old files about the overlook and what happened to it and all these different things. And he's like, this is amazing. I'm going to write a book about the overlook. He's like, I'm going to use this time in the hotel to write this book that's really, really important. And you see like why he's doing that, which you don't yeah. get any sense of that from the movie from the word go it's just like he's writing something but very early on it's like what is he writing is it any good and then you just see that he's crazy from very early on yeah and like i don't know if this was in in the book i also knew all of the twists like they're such cultural icons now right like all of the big moments in this movie have been parodied like there's an entire simpsons episode based on the shining that i'm pretty oh, sure yeah. i've seen the, the the fact that what he was writing was all, you know, um, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy um, like that is really unsettling. But like knowing that was coming, I think felt like it definitely took took the mick out of it a little bit for me. Um, it definitely does still a like a great scene. It definitely cheapens the twist or like like lessens the punch of the twist when you know it's coming. Because the yeah. first time I saw it, I I mean, I was a kid. I don't know, probably. 12, 13 years old, but like, I didn't know that twist was coming. And so seeing that and just looking at Wendy realizing, like, I thought he was off, but I realized he is bat crazy, lost his mind. And they right. actually, some like poor assistant to Stanley Kubrick actually had to go and type out all those things of like all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, like over and over. I mean, like hundreds right. of pages, like they're showing the pages. It has different designs, that sort of thing. But it's such a great twist of like terror, which is like, he's all day. Like it's such a great reveal all day. He's working on this stuff and all he's doing is typing these words over and over again. And what a picture of madness that is. Right. And especially when you realize that's what he's been doing the whole time. Right. That's the entire work. And you have all those scenes of him like thinking and like throwing the ball up against the walls. He's like brainstorming and trying to like fix his writer's block to know that like every breakthrough he had, all of the work that he did was still only that puts you in a very like um, beautiful mind or like those places where you realize like, oh, this character I've been following is like an unreliable source of my empathy. Um, the problem, though, is that I, I never had empathy for this character. 
So I think what's interesting, though, is like he is the psychopath. He is the villain. And unlike every other movie where it's like Norman Bates or Michael Myers or the Zodiac, you know, we only see them in glimpses for little scenes and they come out from the shadows and then they like walk away. He's in like. 80 90 percent of the movie and so right. i think that's what makes this movie so interesting and different than all other horror movies is like we are right next to a person who is totally terrifying and totally frightening and there's never a moment when he's with danny or wendy or anyone else that i don't feel just completely frightened of him or at least completely like oh this guy is able to do something horrible at any moment and i would not be surprised it would not be it would be terrifying but it would not be surprising and so having a villain that present on the screen for so much of the movie i think is what makes this movie unique and different is is this movie Jack Nicholson at his most Jack Nicholsoniest? I'm so glad you asked that because one of the things that's important that we've lost, we lose when we see, you know, we know the whole arc of his career, right? Like we know him from all the way to Easy Rider, which is like he's the young rebel, and now he's like the old guy who sits at Laker games, and that's kind of what we know about him. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the old guy in The Departed. You would have stepped further to old guy who sits at Lakers games. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, <laughs> you know, he's the, he's in the front row of the Oscars. Yeah, he's in The Departed. He's in like uh, so many iconic performances. And this is the first movie where it's like, oh, he's just totally uncorked and undone. And we've yeah. never seen this before from him. Since then, we've seen Joker. We've seen the, you know, villain in The Departed. We've seen other villainous performances from him. But he right. had never been a pure villain the whole time. And I think that's what we lose to history, right? Like, it'd be like George Clooney, just all of a sudden, he's in a movie and he's just going crazy and he just like obliterates someone. And you're like, Oh, but that's George Clooney. He's kind of cool. He's kind of sweet. He's a little bit rebellious, but I like George Clooney. But oh, that's frightening that it's him. Because I feel like Jack Nicholson now is like the poster boy for like unhinged performances. Yeah. But you're saying back in like the 70s and his more like photogenic heyday, he was more like a Harrison Ford character where he was like the bad boy who had an edge, but ultimately charming and likable. Yes. He has, you know, like in Chinatown, he's very reserved. He's very like thoughtful. He's still got an edge, but like, yeah, it's like more Harrison Ford, George Clooney sort of vibe. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. He definitely has an edge, but he's just kind of the bad boy with a heart of gold. You know, like, I think what makes this movie so interesting is, oh, we always root for him. You know, like, I think because of who he is, Mm -hmm. you're talking about empathy, but you're thinking of it like a film viewer. And there is some star power that Stanley Kubrick knew about. And because of who he is, it's just like, oh, I, I like him. He has this magnetism. But this guy is vile and I can't believe, you know, like we've never seen Brad Pitt just be nasty and evil to someone and say things that just eviscerate them and show the grossness of humanity. And if we did that, we're like, I'm not sure what I think about Brad Pitt. I'm not sure what I think about Leo doing that. You know, he's at that level of fame doing this. And I think that's part of what made this performance in the moment so shocking. Sure. It's like Leo and Django where you're like, I've just never seen you do something like yep. that before. Yep. Um, that, 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 that is really interesting because that does play into us watching movies as, as an audience is what is our preconceived 
notion of an actor. The character or the script or the filmmaker may not even have to endear us to a certain character if they put the a certain actor in there because we're predisposed to that, which is certainly something I did not walk into this movie thinking. I mean, I've had my entire life of, you know, here's Johnny, you know, quotes right. and memes and right like like that's how I know Jack Nicholson is sticking his head through a door with an axe right like that's that was my introduction to the man well and I think that's why I want to do a podcast about this episode and like why I'm interested in revisiting older movies is not just like watching an older movie but thinking about like okay what was it in the moment what did it mean and looking at it with that sort of lens I think is important to do the other thing that we know now about the movie that people didn't know at the time was for Shelley Duvall, this experience was very traumatic. Have you heard about any of that? Yeah, uh, Kubrick put her really through the ringer in a way that would be that was unacceptable at the time, but would certainly be unacceptable now. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's abusive. Um, yeah. Her fear in this movie, uh, I mean, she's a woman who is like fragile and terrified and that you know was some acting but a lot of it was just like she felt unsafe and she felt scarred she felt like she was next to a monster and so just that experience and Kubrick wanted that real raw performance and so he did nothing to protect her from that and he made her do take after take after take after take in a way that was scarring to her like that's a real thing that's happening on the screen as well and when you know I think we know at this point in history and it's shameful that we didn't pursue it earlier you know when it when it comes to the last the last century but when people specifically men have that kind of power specifically in this industry really horrible things can happen to people because people look the other way because they're protecting their own careers and their own financial stability and these powerful celebrity directors or producers or whatever can really get away with uh, ho- horrifying things but is certainly something that we're talking about more and more recently which is which is good because a really great actress could give that performance without being psychologically abused in a way that would scar her for the rest of her life. Exactly. Well, I, kind of going back to something that you were saying earlier with your questions, which is like, there are so many questions that are unanswered. I think that really works in this movie. And it's part of the <laughs> charm is not the right word, but it's part of the like <laughs> m- sure. magnetism that like keeps drawing people to this. And For there sure. are insane fan theories on this movie. Um, there's actually a documentary called Room 237, uh, okay. which is literally a two hour documentary of fan theories on this movie. And I sent you like a 10 minute clip. You want to hear one of the fan theories or listeners, you guys want to hear one of the fan theories, which is this one is you crazy. Say it, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't want to, I, I, I want to hear you say it, but when you sent me this, I was, I was like prepared to get into like the supernatural character twistiness that was actually going to explain some of this movie for me. And what this person thought it was, was off the rails. <laughs> And The Shining may be the greatest YouTube movie of all time. If you go into like different YouTube fan theories, there is page after page. It can really like some of it is like scarring. Some of it will break your brain, but it's pretty like shocking to see. But one of the most amazing fan theories is that The Shining is Stanley Kubrick's confession for filming the moon landing and faking the moon landing. And that's this whole movie is a confession for that. Yeah. What did you think when you were watching that clip that I sent you? I just like what? What even? I mean, part of me was like, is is 237,000 miles really the distance to the moon? Um, some of this is I was like, is 
are all these numbers fake? Like, one, the moon landing is real. Two, Stanley Kubrick didn't didn't film it. Um, so there's no way any of this is real. But like the amount of proof he had to back up his theory was enough to at least create a 10 minute documentary about it, which was a kind of wild all by itself. One of the theories is so the room in the Stephen King novel is 217 and in uh, The Shining, it's room 237. Now, the logical answer is because the hotel they shot it in actually had a 217. So they said, don't do a 217, just use another room. And he said, OK, we'll do 237. But what this fan theory says is like, no, the reason they did room 237 is because it is exactly 237,000 miles from the Earth to the moon. And then you look at the room key and the room key says, room number but the n in number is capitalized and the o is not so the, yeah. all the capital letters say moon room and so they're actually saying room 237 is a metaphor for the sound stage that he shot the moon landing on and then another piece of like fascinating evidence is danny the actor is also named danny uh is wearing That's an right. apollo 11 sweater which is a bizarre costume choice like i don't know what kids wear spaceship sweaters or like star wars sweaters or something like that but the sweater actually says apollo 11 which i maybe those were really popular someone would have to do a deep dive into it but like that is a like shocking thing for like okay stanley kubrick who made the most convincing space movie of all time 2001 which really makes space look real the year before the moon landing was shot and then all of a sudden this kid is wearing an apollo 11 shirt and then he (laughs) walks into room 237 and then when he walks out of room 237 the shirt is torn apart which is a metaphor for like okay i'm ripping apart the truth and letting you know what really happened that's what the theory is is that this is a confession for the moon landing the way you're talking about this right now, I almost feel like you believe this, Rob. I don't believe it at all. But what I love about it is like there are so many like crazy weird things in this movie that it's the ultimate Rorschach test. It's the ultimate thing where you can look at it and you can find things and you can kind of make your own theories because it invites you to imagine. I don't know. It just it just captures your imagination in such a bizarre way. That's super true. I mean, when I was listening to this theory about it being a confession about how they faked the moon landing and then they showed the the shirt, right? In my head, I was like, in now, like today's day and age with the Internet and, you know, if this was a conspiracy theory, it'd be all over over Twitter. Um, I, I can absolutely imagine a director just including that in a movie just to troll people. So my very 2022 brain was thinking like oh if kubrick heard this insane conspiracy theory that he faked the moon landing maybe he just threw that in there just to like you know screw with people just you know because it would be funny um seems like something he would do but also that is not like 1980 it doesn't feel like the time when you know the most artistic craft driven directors were doing things like that (laughs) Right. This is not like lost with Easter eggs. This is not a Marvel movie. This is one of the most accomplished filmmakers in the 20th century making this movie. And this is before YouTube. This is before like Reddit. This is long before anything else like that. So there's not much people aren't like this is even before VHS tapes, before people could watch stuff at home. So there's no like watching movies and pausing them back then. Sure. You had to go to the movie theater (laughs) and see it, you know. And so it's just like. Maybe, but the amount of evidence that's in it, again, I don't think is 
<laughs> points to it being faking the moon landing at all, but I do think it points to there are so many unsettling things in this movie, and your brain just goes into overdrive trying to make sense of it. And one of the things that is, I think, eventually so unsettling about the movie, which is probably why I was... I started to be scared in, in, in the third act is the fact that nothing has an answer, right? That almost everything is a one off in my experience with this movie. I, I thought that like the twin girls and the blood in the elevator was like the key scary thing, right? That like they were they were the link to whatever the supernatural horror of the Overlook Hotel was right They are sort of. Not to say the big bad, but the the main um, supernatural entity, because they're what is memed the most right They're the, the, the most r- recognizable in in yeah. pop culture. It seems like every scare in this movie is isolated and unexplained and has nothing to do with the uh, other ones. So the like weird woman in room 237, like it's just all by itself. It has d- no seeming connection to anything else. The the party with the bartender, no seeming connection. The man in the bear mask, the room full of skeletons, right? Like they're all just on their own and terrifying in their own right, right? But not not leading you anywhere specific, which maybe just leads you in this leaves you in this place of you know un untethered madness because there is no explanation. Right. You're watching this like a modern moviegoer, which is like, okay, I'm going to figure out all these are all puzzle pieces that I'm going to go. And once I click them together, the whole mystery will take make sense. And it's like, no, there's all these ghost stories in this hotel. And these characters are just interacting with these ghost stories. There was a murder in room 237. There was a caretaker who killed his family. Like there were like horrible things that happened in this hotel. And these characters are just walking around running into ghost stories. And like, that's it. There's no big mystery that has to be unlocked there's just kind of terror everywhere and it is you know isolation okay we need to get into most meaningful scene i don't i don't even know if we need to do most meaningful character but let's do most meaningful scene what was your most meaningful scene in this movie my most meaningful scene i would say was the final sequence of the movie which starts from the discovery of jack's book being not a book at all Sort of all the way through the the corn maze chase. That whole bit was the part that just completely drew me in and un, unsettled me. And I was like, "This is where this has all been been leading." Um, and it was it was sort of the big the big rush that I'd been waiting for for the whole movie. Yeah, it's like everything is leading up to that, and then finally, it's like okay. And I think that's what's so interesting about this movie, right? Which is like. No one is killed <laughs> um, in the whole movie, right? Like, there is no, like, I mean, Scatman is. I, I guess that's true. Scatman is killed. So. <laughs> so he, gets, he gets a knife in the, in, in the, or he gets an axe in the gut super hard. Yeah, Scatman is killed. But, like, that's it. There's one murder in the whole movie, you know, like, unlike a slasher and, like, even Zodiac, which we talked about. Like, there's just not a lot of that. And so there's a, just a lot of, like, tension. And then it's a much more traditional, like, okay. There is there is a boundary line drawn, which is like this guy's a monster coming after him and it's on now from that moment forward. Right. And and I think it's him killing our boy Scatman Crothers that really pushes us into that territory because he's a psychopath before then. But the question is, is he a murderous psychopath? And they answer it. They go, yes, he is. 
right? Like, there won't be the moment where he, like, suddenly feels bad and is guilt-ridden and stops, right? Like, we see that he's completely capable, without remorse, of slamming an axe through a, a person's stomach. Um, right. My most meaningful scene is actually the scene when he goes into the bar and he talks with Lloyd and the party's, like, fully to life. And then okay. he goes into the bath, like, Grady, like, spills something with him. And he uh-huh. goes in the bathroom with Grady. And I don't know what it is, but, like, that scene is so breathtaking to me. It's this weird, like, red bathroom. Grady is there, and he's kind of, like, challenging his manhood. He's challenging, like, are you in control or not? And he's clearly the caretaker. And just the way that he's, like, you know, the whole conversation is, like, haunting and cryptic. But essentially, it's like, you've got a problem are you going to fix it? Are you going to handle this? And that's where he convinces him to kill Scatman Crothers. That's where he convinces him, like, you need to do whatever it takes to, like, take care of your family, whether, you know, like, verbally putting them into line or actually killing them. That's what's going to do. Yeah. And then they follow it up with him having a conversation with Grady again through the pantry door. Yep. And they don't show Grady and he's just talking to this disembodied voice of 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 Grady that then lets him out of the pantry, even though you don't see it. Right. You just hear it. Um, And and, and I thought after having this whole scene where you see this man, he manifests as a butler and that when he comes back that like they don't. They make the choice not to show him. It 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 makes it even more maddening and more in this zone of a hallucinate, you know, a hallucination. What did you think of the last shot of the movie? Because that was probably my runner-up for most meaningful scene. Is actually just literally that last shot of the movie where it goes and the camera pushes in and pushes in and eventually and it's all the like old-fashioned music from the twenties and then eventually right. you see that he is the caretaker on Fourth of July, nineteen twenty-one. Um, well, I thought earlier in the movie they kept panning by all of these photos constantly, like yep. in all these tracking shots. They're like almost landing on these photos, and they keep talking about the history of the of the hotel. And so there was a part of me that was like, "Is there weird stuff in these photos that they're gonna like reveal later?" Like it, it felt like that was gonna be like some kind of a twist. But the fist, the like the twist that he's always been there. Like, again, it's one of these massive mysteries to me, because other than Grady saying you've always been the caretaker, right? Like, I wasn't the caretaker. Like, it's always been you. Other than that, that's not set up anywhere. That's not a payoff. It feels like the movie is saying, like, here's the ultimate, like, answer to the questions that you've had. Look, he's been here the whole time. He was here in 21. Now that you see this, it'll explain everything. That, to me, is what that final push and shot is doing but it doesn't it just asks me another question it it, it just it's a completely new supernatural uh, occurrence that explains nothing (laughs) and so it was like very weird did you know that was coming like when it's pushing in the photo did you know what was about to happen i mean i was the only thing that could happen so i assumed that's what was going to happen um as 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 soon as they started pushing into the photo i was like oh it's going to show jack nicholson in there because um, yep. I mean that was the only thing that that, that made sense, but it, it didn't. I I don't know what that meant. Is is there some conspiracy theory about that, or d- does that to you explain s- something supernatural or add a layer of mystery? I think it does what you just said, which is like 
nothing that you just saw made sense. You cannot figure this movie out. You can't decide what this means. Like it's just layer of layer of like mystery upon it. And it's just so creepy that he's just there. And that's where like, we've never seen him like happy or okay. He's kind of just like off his rocker the whole time. And the fact that he's like in this photo in the twenties, there's just something again, like so weirdly creepy about it to me. And what I love about it is that it doesn't, it does the exact thing that you just said, which is like, it not only doesn't answer any questions, it brings up 45 other questions and that's all we have. And then boom, we cut to credits and it's like, wait, what? And that's so much more terrifying than if it's like, oh, okay, that's what that meant. That's why he said that to Shelley Duvall and then it all makes sense. Sure. I, I feel like I feel like for, for me, there is a line between mystery and unknown being unsettling and terrifying and it being so unknown that I'm just confused and don't care. <laughs> sure. And and I feel like The Shining, not to crap with this movie, because I do think it's incredibly well made. And there there are whole sequences in it that are like really like, oh, my goodness. Right. And the and the mix between how it's shot and the music and. Uh, you know the the colors and like uh, it's it's really really well done but to me the way that the narrative unfolds the more questions it asks um i'm i'm not more scared by it but rather just kind of confused and i i i'm not sure what rewrite i would make to a masterpiece um to connect me more because i think i have to be empathetic with something or i have to emotionally connect with something in in order to be scared by it Well, and again, this is Stephen King's like whole criticism of the movie is like, you don't care about these characters. Like you don't feel the sense of jeopardy happening to them. You don't feel a descent into madness because it's there from the first frame, you know? Right. I do think, I do think what's interesting, like save the cat has one of their genres is called monster in the house. And so for monster in the house, I probably talked about this before, but there's to be three things. There has to be a monster. There has to be a house and there has to be a sin that invites the monster in the house. And I think that's uh, monster in the house. It's like, okay, whatever. But what makes that genre so interesting to me is there's that sin. So in Jaws, the sin is like, hey, the shark is there, but they're going to still reopen the beach anyway, because we've got to have it open for Fourth of July. And so that sin is like commerce kind of similar to jurassic park is a monster in the house story which is like hey we know this is wrong we know whatever else but there's we're still trying to make money so we just sign off greed over compassion and then even when you get to like a more classic horror movie like friday the 13th the sin in that movie is there was murders at camp crystal lake and then they're going to try to like gloss it over we're reopening the lake it's fine now we're like minimizing the history we're not going to tell people what really happened we're just going to reopen the camp like everything's going to be okay and them trying to gloss over what happened and the fact that like jason died because counselors weren't paying attention to him then that sin gets revisited on the camp so i think that's what's so interesting to me about monster in the house movies is this idea of sin invites it and as i was watching this movie this time i was like okay this is very much a monster in the house movie what is the sin in this movie and i think mm-hmm. it's shelly duvall who goes and there's this scene where she's talking about what happened to danny and what she says is like you know jack like pulled on his arms like any parent does a thousand times and she's just excusing her husband the whole time even though the like doctor, caseworker, whatever that woman was, like, it's clearly looking at her like, 
woman, you are empowering abusive man and like you are sure. making your son unsafe. And so the fact that she just tried, like she's too weak to stand up to him. And not only that, like apologizes for him and rationalizes his behavior. That is the sin that invites, you know, the shining to happen. That is in- interesting because she, yeah, she is the least mysterious character in in the, the movie and so potentially the the one that you are you know tracking with the most or the the one that would be the victim um that would traditionally be yeah m- maybe the one who had who had the, the 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 sin that brought the thing in i found myself when it came to like maybe our category of most most meaningful character connecting with danny the most even though he probably gives the worst performance because he's six um yeah. Uh, you know, he 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 doesn't crush it, but uh, <laughs> um, just this idea of being like powerless to change anything about your surroundings because you're like a kid, like your parents brought you to a haunted hotel and you have to like play. Right. Like like that kind of helplessness, I think, is one of one of the situations that made me feel fear of of sort of his helplessness to change um, and, and anything. But then the wild thing that they do with him is that like sometimes he's this character that I objectively was like feeling scared for and wanting to take care of and feeling empathy for. And then they'll flip it where like Tony takes over and is like chanting red rum at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so then suddenly Danny's the like maybe not monster, but certainly want to get the heck away from him. Right. Like he's the creepy kid in the house for half the movie. Well, half the movie is like the the victim question mark. Right. Like the the person I want to save. Well, and what's interesting is in the book, like he has that similar kind of like prophetic thing where he like he has that moment in the movie where he sees the blood kind of coming out of the elevator and he sees the girls and then he screams and that kind of sends him into like a coma and that's why the like doctor lady comes over the book has that same thing and he's like i need to tell mom and dad we can't go here but eventually what happens is he keeps seeing the word divorce in his head and he ways king describes it as like the word divorce appears to him and has snakes slithering all around it and so he realizes if my mom and dad don't go here, they're going to get divorced. This is the only place that we can go. So he kind of knows that he's walking into terror, but he agrees to go because he's like, this is the only way to save my family. And so, again, you have this other like less motivation that. that you don't get in the like. That's why I think what goes best is read the book and watch the movie and you get the full experience. Yeah. Which is kind of a cheat. <laughs> I don't think I would say that about anything else, but I do believe that about this particular story. It's a fascinating movie. Like, I, I, I feel like I spent most of this this podcast kind of being like murr, 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 a bit, but I think it's because I'm I've it had so much buildup for me over like my entire life of this being one of the scariest movies of all time. And while it was scary, I was surprised at I guess what it didn't do that I was expecting it to, which maybe is my original sin of film watching is having uh, expectations of what a movie should do. Um, but um, I, I, it's fascinating. And what they do in this movie is so deliberate and so well executed. I just have all these questions over like why it was done that way. And, you know, like I just have so many questions that I'm, I'm more marvel. I'm marveling at this movie maybe more than I'm terrified by it. <laughs> Well, and I think, again, like what what King is frustrated is like, no, you're not explaining any of the things. And essentially Kubrick is like, you know what? 
I'm going to have all these reasons the characters act this way. And there is a great novel behind it. There is their own internal logic. Like everyone has a reason for doing what they do, but I'm not going to give you any of it. All you're going to get is the end results of their action without any of the motivations. And so it is kind of like, weird and terrifying and Tony like even when he's chanting red rum like that's Tony saying like hey trauma is coming it's this kind of internal voice which is like knowing that like oh my gosh my mom is going to be murdered like I'm going to be murdered and so he has this revelation which turns into just this childlike chanting of red rum and it's not like evil within him it's this like sense of like oh I know what's going to happen and I'm powerless to do anything about it so it's this like childhood tantrum meltdown that happens but but we again we don't know any of that all you do is like wait what's happening here this is creepy but it doesn't make sense right and i i loved that red rum scene even i mean again i've seen that that parodied my entire life but how creepy that is and then that moment where she sees it sees that it's murder reflected in the room that is almost a jump scare in itself in the way that the music treats it that whole moment's terrifying and then Jack Nicholson shows up with the axe and you realize that it is not a that the whole that whole moment was not intended by the characters to be creepy, but in fact was that that warning. At least there's logic to it, right? Like, oh, it was a warning. Maybe I don't know why he has this premonition of the voice, but I know why this moment is occurring. And then we can get into, okay, and 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 now there's a guy with an axe. Like, at least enough internal logic that I may have questions, but I'm like I don't know, able to Im- Im- emotionally imprint on characters. Um, I love moments like that. And I thought that scene did it really well. Absolutely. It does. Well, um, I think we're getting near to the end of the podcast. We've, <laughs> we're trying to keep this around an hour. So I'll just get right to it, which is like the meaning of the movie. Do you want to go first or you want me to go first on what is the meaning of this movie? I think this, the meaning of this movie is ultimately about isolation and madness basically i guess our own demons whatever they are are ultimately the most scary thing right um that it's 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 not actual demons in the woodwork that are going to hurt us it's it's our our own stuff and i don't understand what this movie is saying the quote our own stuff is but i think that that ultimately is the the meaning is that like what what we do in our own brains is the ultimate terror I guess, in the world and to one another. That's 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 what I would say. I think what the meaning of this movie is, is it's about purpose and it's about when you think your own purpose is more important than the people around you. And this purpose, like he has this higher calling of his writing and his job and his thing. It's really not that much about isolation. Like you said before, like the isolation isn't what's making him go crazy. What makes him go crazy is like, no, I have this important thing to do. And he devotes himself to it so completely but we lo- we see literally how meaningless it is, right? Like his purpose sure. is nothing else but madness on the page. But I think that's Kubrick c- kind of saying like all these things that men think are so important, that people think are so important, that they put ev- invest everything in and then hurt the people around him. 
is meaningless. And ironically, he does the same thing. Kubrick literally invests so much into this film and he hurts Shelley Duvall, you know, in making the film itself because he's like, oh, this film must be perfect. This take has to be perfect. And so he's so invested in his own all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy that he, you know, hurts the person next to him. That's what Jack's sin is, is he's like, my job is so important. My work is so important. And alcoholism eventually fuels that right which all of a sudden he's like i've been dry for a long time but then alcoholism takes a part and this is again what happens to men especially in the 50s 60s 70s when where kubrick grew up and he's seeing all these different men who are going with this sense of purpose and then alcohol gets in it and then they become monsters in their whole family it means what does it mean to actually live with a monster? And that's the sense of isolation that real people have, which mm-hmm. is like, no, they're not trapped in the overlook. But for someone who's five years old and can't get away from their dad when right. he is obsessed with his own purpose and he is dealing with alcoholism, like that is what a true monster is. And it doesn't take isolation. It doesn't take a snowstorm. It just takes this weird like sense of your own self and your own important and listening to other voices like men saying to you like, oh, you need to prove your worth. You need to do this. You need to put your family in place. That sort of like toxic thinking is deconstructed and ripped apart. And I think that's what the mo- this movie means. Well, that was a much more thoughtful and compelling answer than mine. Uh, I really do uh, love that. You know, sometimes we each like have a little pitch for what we think the meaning is. And I go, huh, I liked those. And sometimes you say something and I go, wow, uh, you just ate my lunch. Um, Not that it's a competition, but that is really thoughtful. Um, And I would say that's way more than the moon landing theory. uh, All there on the page like that is very much um, in 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 this movie and what the movie is focused on, not just in the background like that is very much the forefront of this movie. Well, to be fair, I've seen this movie probably a dozen times and um, I just, but I also feel like we talked around it in this podcast and I'm like, I want to directly say like what the terror is. And I think he does isolate something so transcendent, which is the true monsters are not necessarily spooky things coming out at night. The true monsters are people who are close to you, who can hurt you and no one can protect you. Ooh, that's almost what I said. I was close. (laughs) You're a good man. (laughs) <laughs> well, I will give you a shining A plus for this episode. Uh, I'm going to give my own brain about a B minus, but very <laughs> interesting movie. And I'm so glad that you that you got me to watch it. Yeah, I, I hope I'm curious if anyone else like watches this movie for the first time, like shoot me a message or let me know what you think. And that's part of, you know, in October in the Halloween season, it's like we watch scary movies. And I think some of them are like weird or like, what are we even watching here? But I do think this is one that has a lot of ideas in it. This is one that wrestles with some things and it's an interesting movie. So it's why I want to talk about this one in the podcast. And Andrew, thanks for coming along for the journey. I always come along for the journey and I'm happy to do it. Thank you for getting me to watch this movie. Thank you all for listening. Um, Rate, review, subscribe. Uh, We love all of those things. It really does help. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And we will see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie.